floor. Leaders are in the back to greet you and to take you to your places. And parents, if you have not registered your children, we request that you, you meet um, somebody in the lower lobby to help you register your children at the entrance of the children's wing. If you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to Esther chapter 7. And if you're new to the Bible, if you kind of open it to the middle, you might land in the book of Psalms. And if you just look to the left, uh, not many pages from the book of Psalms, uh, you'll find the book of Esther. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents if you need to. Uh, but I want to encourage you to have a Bible open or on uh, while we study this morning. Uh, quite a few of you have slipped in since we started the service. And so I want to thank you in case you missed it. Thank you for wearing your mask over your nose and mouth every Sunday. Thank you for RSVPing. And if you ever feel like, hey, there's just a few too many people in the room for me, our second service has about half as many people. You've got a lot more room to sprawl out. You can come to church late, and then you can enjoy the final hour and a half of sunshine in your day, and it will have been a great day. So just know you always have that as an option to you. Esther chapter 7. Today, our focus is on life and death. Uh, I once witnessed life and death sitting in a booth in a barbecue restaurant. Uh, Melissa and I were eating at one of our favorite barbecue places several years ago, and two men sat behind me in the booth right next to me. I don't normally pay attention to other people's conversations uh, whenever I'm stuffing my face with barbecue, but these two guys talked loud, and a couple of things they said stuck with me. Uh, so the man sitting closest to me explained to his friend that he had just been released from the hospital that morning, that a few days prior he'd had an angioplasty surgery, and he was so glad to finally be out of the hospital. His friend didn't know this, and he said, wow, this is amazing. Well, I'm glad we get to eat together. And then the guy who just got out of the hospital went on to explain how now he had to make some different lifestyle changes and do things different than he had before. There's life. He's been given life by the doctors, life through his treatment at the hospital, life in the choices he's going to make. Well, then the waitress came to the table, and Mr. Life Change asked this, does the barbecue burrito come with cheese? I need to know because I had a heart attack last week, and I'm making some lifestyle changes. <laughs> barbecue burrito. That's a lifestyle choice to be sure, cheese or no cheese. I saw life and I saw death both at the same time in this barbecue restaurant. Esther chapter 7 shows us two people where life and death are at play. Uh, both of them plead for their lives. One succeeds and one fails. One is granted life, the other is sentenced death. In these two examples, we learn a great deal about what it means to be a follower of God in the way of life. And also, we are warned about what it means to walk in the way of death. Don't we long to be these kinds of Christians who speak life, who act for the sake of life for the people around us? Don't we want to be the kinds of followers of Jesus Christ with the gospel and with the call of God on our hearts that we inject life into the people that we interact with and the situations we find ourselves in. Have you ever seen a Christian whose words and choices were more reflective of death than life? Have you ever been that Christian? 
Well, in our passage today, we join Esther, the king, and Haman at Esther's second banquet. And at this banquet, Esther shows us the way of life. Haman shows us the way of death. And my purpose in preaching this passage today, quite simply, is this. I want to point you down the path of life. Would you follow along with me as I read Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, or he asked Queen Esther, Who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Uh, last week in chapter 6, there are very comical aspects of the story. Here in chapter 7, and there's some serious stuff going down. The reversal of the fortune of God's people continues. God continues from the beginning of chapter 6 forward to change things in favor of His people for the sake of their deliverance, the sake of their prosperity even, and not just removing the threat, but also bringing judgment on the one who crafted the threat against them. In Esther chapter 7, we have... Esther's way and we have Haman's way. We have the way of life and the way of death. And I want to talk about those two ways this morning and share with you a few different characteristics that we find on the way of life as well as on the way of death. How can I know I'm walking in God's way? So let's talk first about characteristics of the way of life. I want to share two of them with you. First characteristic of the way of life in Esther chapter 7 is that God's people are your people. How do I know if I'm walking in the way of life? How do I know that I am doing what God has saved me and called me to do? If you identify with God's people. So Esther begins her request to the king by first identifying herself as a Jewish woman. This is ultimately not an ethnic designation, but it is a religious designation. She identifies herself as a member of God's covenant people. And you'll remember that earlier in the book of Esther, Esther chose to keep quiet about her Jewish identity. The first time was in chapter 2, verse 10. She kept her identity secret because Mordecai, her dad, told her to do so. We're not sure 
why he told her that, but he did. And then in chapter 4, verse 11, when Mordecai pleads with her to go to the king and intercede on behalf of her people, well, Esther again wants to keep her identity secret because she thinks doing so will preserve her life. It will keep her alive. But her true identity will remain a secret no longer here in chapter 7. She reveals her Jewish identity, knowing that doing so could mean death for her. Death because she has deceived the king, or death because the decree will be carried out even against her if it stays in place. Esther's identity with the people of God is a major theme throughout this entire book. And it begs the question of us, the readers, us The listeners, are we people of God? Who are your people? That's that's a question that people around here love to answer. We we identify very quickly. It it might be, hey, my people are Italian or, or Irish or Brazilian or Portuguese or whatever it might be. Your people might be a town. Or a neighborhood. Your people might be a sports team. Your your people might be coffee snobs. Who knows? There's any number of groups that we may align ourselves with. But most important of all is this. Are God's people your people? Do you live a public faith? There's no room in the kingdom of God for secret disciples. Those who just go about their business trying to protect themselves through keeping their faith secret from their family, from their co-workers, from their neighbors. So do you publicly identify as God's child? Are you known as a follower of Jesus Christ? Perhaps Esther's example motivates you to go public with your faith. And why would you do that? Well, that's because this is the way lives are changed. This is how people in your life will go from death to life you're publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And so how can you do that in a very practical way? If you are a person who's very private and secret and reserved about your faith, how can you change that? Here's one practical tip. The next time you're in an elevator with a stranger and the door closes, just yell at them, I love Jesus. I think we can all get on board with that. That's not going to be weird or strange. It fits in our social protocols. No. We're not talking about being a weirdo or being just very aggressive in the way we put this in front of people. That's, that's not what identifying with God's people means. What it does mean, though, is that in natural ways, we leverage conversations towards Jesus Christ. Or we look for on-ramps with the gospel as we interact with the people in our lives. We are liberal with praying for people, not just saying, I will pray for you. But some of the most powerful moments in my life where I've been ministered to by another sister or another brother is whenever they pray for me immediately, right then and right there. They don't just say, I'll pray and then walk away. And that's not that I doubt that they would pray for me, but right then and there, they pray. I'm going to change real quick. You, excuse me, you can be that sort of Christian. That's what it looks like for you to have a public identification with Jesus Christ. That you would interject faith into conversations. Uh, Your friends, how often do you break spiritual ground with friends or family members in conversation? I don't mean for the sake of debate. That's not, debate's not the goal. 
The goal is walking with people towards the cross of Jesus Christ. It requires a public witness. It requires Christians who identify publicly with the people of God. So are you doing that? Are you living in this way? Christian, don't be scared or ashamed to identify publicly with Jesus because the world around us is decaying in darkness and Jesus has saved you so that you would impact lives with the gospel. So one key characteristic of walking in the way of life is identifying with God's people. A second characteristic is that God's agenda is your agenda. God's people are your people. God's agenda is your agenda. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone has things that they are about, work they're trying to accomplish and do, things that anger them, things that give them energy. But for the people of God, we want what God wants, and our lives are lived in that direction. And so Esther continues her conversation with the king as she makes her plea to him for her people. And she she is brilliant in the way she phrases the situation. She begins in verse 4 by telling the king that she and her people have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. Those three words are the same words used in Haman's original decree. But now comes the tricky part as she presents this to the king. You see, you have to remember the king is the one who approved Haman's plan. Haman, according to chapter 3, he's very clear, it would seem, with the king about what his intentions are. He wants to do away with this entire group of people. And the king agreed to that. But Esther presents the information in such a way as to give the king a way out and to pin the blame on Haman. She said in verse 4, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. So Esther's putting the idea into the king's head that he approved a decree of slavery, not knowing it was really a decree of death. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the words for slavery and destruction sound exactly alike. It's a matter of context for how they're translated. Now, Haman didn't speak Hebrew to his Persian king, but it could be that in the way he presented the information, perhaps he duped the king. Perhaps he wasn't totally forthright with all the information that he had in store for the Jewish people. Whatever the situation is, Esther presents the, the information in such a way that the king himself is not held responsible for this decree but Haman is. We just don't know what the king thought was happening when he agreed to Haman's plan uh, at the very beginning of things. But what's most important to us is that here in chapter 7, Esther pleads for her people. That's the business she is about. She is interceding on behalf of God's people and identifying the enemy against God's people. So Esther's clear on her mission. Esther's not there for her own advancement. She's not there for some task that's important to her and not anyone else. She is there to accomplish God's business. She knows she was put there for such a time as this. Now, Christians today stand in the same place as Esther does. We must use our position for the sake of the lives of people who are in peril around us. This has always been God's agenda. If you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, as God is 
training his people once again on how to live in covenant faithfulness with him, he tells them over and over that they bear responsibility for vulnerable populations around them, specifically widows, orphans, and the foreigner who lives among you. That's the holy trinity of vulnerable people in the Old Testament. So it is baked into our DNA from the very beginning that God's people are concerned about those who are vulnerable, those who suffer injustice, those who are facing annihilation. What does that look like for you and I today as followers of Jesus Christ? There's any number of places where we might align our lives with God's agenda. Let me name just a couple to you. First of all, we get on board with God's agenda when we advocate for the unborn. Uh, abortion is a horror in our nation. Just this past week, uh, the Massachusetts Senate approved what is called colloquially the Roe Act. And among the details in this, uh, it lowers the age at which a, a child needs parental notification for an abortion from 18 to 16. It also permits abortions past 24 weeks if there is identified in the child uh, uh, some sort of fatal abnormality as determined by the doctor. It goes to the house next. And, and our commonwealth is codifying abortion. It is putting it into our state constitution. Our government officials celebrate the destruction, death, annihilation of the unborn. But God's people care about life. This is our very clear agenda, God's agenda, that we would act in every way possible for the sake of the end of abortion and the rescue of these precious lives. There's another way in which God's people get on board with God's agenda for life, and that's through standing against racism. Did you know that abortion is perhaps the most racist system in our country? And God's people are not okay with racism in any form or any fashion. It's a complicated issue. But what we would do as people of God who are concerned about life, we would start first with ourselves. God, is there any wicked way in me? Lead me in the path of repentance. God, turn me from all the racist words, thoughts that I have, the bias that I have in me that does not reflect your love for people made in your image. And what's more, many of us as white Christians need to engage in a period of education to put our lives next to lives of men and women of color who have endured racism, who have lived it, not just in a distant past, but in recent days, and to listen and to learn and to lock arms as allies as we follow their leadership forward against all the ways racism manifests itself. And then ultimately, our primary agenda, God's agenda, is that we as his people would make the gospel known in all places. This is how we bring life to a world full of decay and darkness, is by speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how abortion ends, and do you want to know how racism ends? Our hope is not in Washington, D.C., though it's not negligible. My hope is in you, the local church, because God has given you power and a call and a clear mission and everything we need to give women better options, 
to address all the societal ills that make abortion seem like it's the only choice for that moment. And Jim Crow is drowned in the baptismal waters. This is how racism is eradicated from the human heart and human society. Not through anything a politician does, but by what God's people do in the name of Jesus Christ with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to war with you. I'm going against the darkness with you. God has put us here for such a time as this that we would lock arms together for God's agenda. People fight for a lot of things. People have a lot of agendas. We want to be about God's business, South Shore Baptist Church, in all that we do. How do we know we're on the path of life? We're identifying with God's people, and God's agenda is our agenda. But there's another path on display in this story, and that's the way of death. So let me show you a couple of characteristics of the way of death that we see through Haman's example. Uh, People who are on the path of death, first of all, they're blind to the truth. They are self-deceived. Haman is our prime example of this. He's completely blind to the truth of his situation until Esther names him as her enemy. You'll remember back in chapter 6, he had to parade Mordecai through the city on the king's horse wearing the king's robe, calling everyone to honor Mordecai. Haman just thought he was having a really bad day. He has no clue that the whole time he's been marked for death in judgment. He's blind to it. As you and I read the story, uh, starting with Haman's appearance in chapter 3, we know because we have this sort of divine um, approach to the story or this divine vision. We know the end uh, as the story is unfolding. We know that step by step, Haman seems like in earthly ways that he has power and influence and that he has the upper hand. But you and I both know the whole time this man is blind to the reality around him. He is walking in the way of death. And his money won't save him. And his title won't save him. His position with the king will not save him. This man is marked for death. One of the surest signs that we're blind to the truth is this self-deception. Thinking that we are doing the things that are right, that that we're doing things that maybe even God might approve of, but the whole time we're blind to the truth of it. How can that be? How can I be a Christian who's blind to the truth and who is living in the way of death? Well, we call that sort of person a hypocrite. That's the word Jesus used in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks directly against religious hypocrisy. Over and over in that chapter, he says a line like this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hypocrisy makes us seem like whitewashed tombs. We may look impressive on the outside, but inside we're full of dead men's bones. And so what does that look like in our lives? Well, it it could mean, or it could look like this, it could be that you are a follower of Jesus, and yet you have an unrestrained issue with anger. And so your volume gets high when you get upset and you call the people in your home names and you discipline your children with fear and terror and you try to win fights with your spouse or with your friends at all costs and people just avoid conflict with you at all costs because they know what your temper is like. And you might say, I'm just a hothead. It's just this Irish blood. I used to be redheaded, and that's why I'm this way. (laughs) That's what I would say. 
But the reality is this, brother, sister, you're blind to the truth. That your anger is not permissible. Those expressions towards people of value and love are not right for God's people. You have to repent of this. What about your alcohol consumption? Do you drink too much? Often? Is this something that you are so sensitive about that when people in your life come to you and say, hey, something's off here, this is not right, something needs to change, you immediately come with all kinds of defense and excuses. It's something you're blind to. If people who love you are saying to you there's a problem, you've got to listen to them and you've got to make changes. So it could be that God's using this story to reveal the hard truth to us that we have a heart like Haman's. We're followers of Jesus, yet we are sowing death in all the areas of our lives. But it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance even now. Haman's example isn't here to condemn you. It's to warn you and to call you back to the grace of God, that you would repent from all the ways you walk in death and you would turn to God in His grace and mercy. Another characteristic of people who are walking the way of death is not just that they're blind to the truth, but they're going to meet God's judgment. Haman's downfall is rapid and graphic. Uh, the king leaves the room in anger as he tries to understand what to do next. And you need to understand that there are explicit laws in Persian culture that we know about, not laws that have to be explained in the story because it, as the writer writes, it's just assumed that the reader knows these laws. But there are explicit laws that say it is illegal for anyone to be alone with a member of the king's harem, and that's who Esther is. So by staying in the room with Esther, Haman is breaking the law. By walking close to her, he is destroying the law. And by falling on her and pleading for his life, he is sealing his own fate. There's no shortage of irony in the fact that Haman was so upset initially because a Jew would not bow down to him, but now Haman bows down to a Jew and begs for his life. And the chapter ends with Haman meeting his end on the gallows he built for Mordecai. All this happens in the span of a day. He showed up at the palace that day to get permission to kill Mordecai. He leaves the palace that day to go to his own death. And so the death of Haman, I think, serves us in two ways. First, it's a warning to all of us about the seriousness of sin. This is a warning that calls us back to the grace of God. And second, as odd as it may sound, I think the death of Haman can be a comfort to those who long for justice. It's not that we delight in the death and destruction of anyone. But there is comfort in knowing that God's judgments are right and true and eternal. The wicked do not prosper. God's justice does not miss its mark. There are some people who are critical of Esther at this part of the story, different writers, commentators, who have said Esther makes a mistake by allowing Haman to be killed. She should have... Um, she should have pled his case. She should have stepped in for him and, and tried to save his life. But I think that sort of conclusion comes from uh, taking 21st century values and forcing them onto 
Esther. And what's more, the people that would blame Esther in this moment forget that the only reason Haman is in this story is because King Saul did not do what God told him to do with Haman's ancestors. We talked about that when we were introduced to, Esther, or to Haman back in chapter 3. So Queen Esther succeeds where King Saul failed. And at long last, the oppressor of God's people is finished. God's judgment on the Agagites has been rendered. Now, there are, are many among us who have suffered abuses at the hands of another person. And the emotions of a victim towards an abuser can be very complicated. But sister or brother, you can rest knowing that God's judgment does not miss its mark. The wicked do not prosper. And should your abuser at some point in his or her life feel the weight of guilt for what they have done against you and against God, and should they turn to God in faith for their salvation, you need to know that God's justice is still enacted. Only in this case, the punishment that they deserve is laid on Christ. And God's justice for what you have endured is unleashed in full on God the Son as he is pinned to the cross. God's justice does not miss its mark. And though in this life we may not see justice how we want, you can rest and take comfort in knowing that your God has not been absent. Your God will see justice done. So in Esther chapter 7 today, we've seen two paths. One path leads to life, the other leads to death. The path of life revolves around or it involves identifying with God's people and striving for God's agenda. The path of death includes people who are blind to the truth and who will meet the justice of God. Which path are you traveling? Can you say with confidence that you're walking the path of life? This story warns us about hiding our Christian identity. It warns us about living for agendas that are not God's. Are you living for what matters? Are you living in line with God's mission? I think everyone's angry about something these days. Are you angry about the right things? Is your anger a righteous anger? Are you striving for the things of God? What does it look like practically to walk in the way of life? Well, Jesus described it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus said this to you. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus again said to you, you are the light of the world. What's that mean? Well, to be salt of the earth, it's a metaphor that describes the way followers of Jesus purify the world around us. This world is in advanced stages of decay. People around us are walking in death, and their rescue comes from salty Christians like you who step in and bring the purity of the gospel to lives that are broken. And what does it mean to be the light of the world? It's a metaphor that describes the way followers of Jesus shine the light of the gospel into the dark world around us. Being a light bearer is intrinsic to genuine Christian faith. Just like fish swim and cows moo, Christians are gospel light bearers. This is the mindset that fuels global missions. You know this, right? When people who bear the name of Christ go where Christ has not been named and they live as salt and light so that the people of God might multiply. 
This is the same mindset that fuels sharing the gospel with your neighbors, being about God's agenda in his business, being salt and light on the path of life as we extend hope to other people in the name of Jesus Christ. Esther 7 calls us then to two distinct actions. The first is to repent from our deadly self-centeredness, and the second is to take action that brings life to the people around us. So will you pray and ask God to guide you in this? God, in light of Esther chapter 7, show me how. Let me be salt and light. Let me lead people on the path of life. What special way will God use you in the life of the person he's brought to mind? How will you be salt and light to the people around you? Jesus said this in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So may we stand like Esther that we might walk in the way of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to speak to you directly for one quick moment. We've talked today about two different paths. Jesus also spoke about these two different paths just in a little different way. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was again speaking to you when he said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. There's a broad road, there's a narrow road. The broad road is the road that leads to destruction. The narrow road is the road that leads to life. Why is it the broad road that leads to destruction? Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. And so we might look at our lives and say, I've got this together. I know how all this works. I'm, I'm pretty sure God's good with me. And I'm telling you, that's the way that leads to death. That's a self-deceived life. Because you're dead in your sin. You can't rescue yourself. You can do nothing to change this verdict that God has given you, a verdict of guilty because of your sin. But that's what God has done for you through his son. He loves you, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. Jesus is the only one that could do this work. There's no one else who could do it for you. You can do nothing about it on your own. This is God's gift to you. So Jesus is the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin. He died on the cross in your place. Three days later, he rose again from the dead and has promised to you because he loves you and because he's true and right is that if you'll turn to him in faith, he'll save you from all your sin. You'll be his child forever and ever. It's God's gift to you. How do you handle gift giving? Do you give gifts with an invoice expecting repayment? That's not what a gift is. You don't give a gift at holiday time and expect someone to pay it back. And that's how, not how God approaches salvation either. He's not going to extend salvation as a gift and then wait for you to do enough good to earn it or to add all your good intentions to it to make it better. We've got nothing to add. All we have is sin and brokenness, and all God has is forgiveness and life and a new name and a new eternity and a new place with him to be risen from dead and placed with Christ in eternity. That's what God has for you. And so he calls you today to leave behind the path of death and to walk with Christ in the path of eternal life. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for Esther's example. She shows such courage, especially when we think about the gross particulars of her situation and how she gets to where she is and why she is where she is. Such courage and strength as she identifies herself with you 
and as she makes herself about your business. Father, there are many different identities that compete for our attention, many different missions that compete for our energies. Lord, let us be about you and only about you, that we would walk in the way of life. God, help us to live this way in very practical ways. Would you bring to our mind people that we care for who are hurting and who need the hope of the gospel? God, let us be found advocating for them in prayer on a regular basis for their salvation and for the healing of their lives. God, I pray that you would use us to spread the gospel and to be advocates for life in all the places where death is reigning around us. God, help us to learn from Haman's example that we would repent, that we would turn back to you when we recognize that we're walking in the way of death. That's a way that's all too familiar to us. But you are so gracious and so loving and so compassionate. Thank you that you are that kind of God. Would you bring times of refreshment today as we turn back to you? God, I pray that you would open the eyes of the one here that doesn't know you as their Savior. Bring salvation and new life today as they turn and trust in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.